Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. There's something different about the contemporary right. Classical liberal rhetoric has been replaced with something much uglier and more reactionary, keen to carve the world into us and them and celebrate the use and abuse of power. Today's conversation is about this turn, or as my guest explains, this return to ideologies a century old or more, but now gaining prominence and attacking the very idea of liberalism. To discuss that, I'm joined by Tom Palmer. He is Executive Vice President for International Programs at Atlas Network, where he holds the George M. Yeager Chair for Advancing Liberty, and a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. With that, let's turn to my conversation with Tom. It often seems that a lot of the far-right movements and ideologies that we see not just emerging right now, but but ascending to dominance in a lot of countries, among a lot of intellectuals, have really striking parallels to the thinking of far-right, sometimes fascist, sometimes proto-fascist movements and ideologies in the 1930s. Am I correct in seeing some sort of parallels there? Not merely parallels. There are direct lines of dissent in many cases, because you find certain authors and thinkers whose ideas have persisted sometimes in a kind of underground way that have reemerged and are extremely influential. So just to take one thinker, Carl Schmitt, There's been quite a Carl Schmitt revival on both the far right and the far left, I should point out. He posited that what was characteristic of politics, a distinguishing feature, was the the conflict between the friend and the enemy, that that distinction between friend and enemy was foundational. And of course, that's very congenial to people who like to see the world in those terms, that there's the enemy of the people versus the people. And so that comes in left-wing and right-wing flavors. He himself was a right-wing collectivist. He became a very enthusiastic member of the National Socialist Party uh, and participated in the purging of Jews and Jewish thoughts, whatever that means, uh, from uh, the German universities and the persecution of Jews. He was a quite robust anti-Semite. But there are many others as well. So there's a trend that goes back not just to the 1930s, as earlier roots, really the 1920s uh, coming out of World War I, which was such a cataclysm for European uh, civilization. Many people rejected liberalism entirely. The experience of having been soldiers at the front created a kind of uh, collectivism spirit that continued on. They called it the front experience in Germany. And there were many philosophers typically ones who did not undergo the front experience, like Carl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger, who 
became rhapsodic about it and, and praised this as the highest of human experience. Now, these thoughts are very much backed. So not only these authors, these texts, but all the key themes, what is called decisionism, what matters is the decision. Not that there are values that we should decide to support, but because we decided, they became values. It's a kind of a, a extreme form of nihilism, if you will. Uh, the denigration of democratic deliberation, the idea that we should discuss things. Uh, instead, it's action, action for its own sake. And we find this in all of these uh, movements, including in the United States with Trump, as he said in his inauguration, uh, no more meaningless talk. The hour of action has arrived. So there are so many parallels, and we do find a very clear line of descent from the thinkers who articulated these ideas in the 20s and 30s. One thing that stands out about these ideas and and is picked up in some of what you just said is – so I guess let me add it this way. When we compare it to, say, Marxism and the other ideologies that was you know i mean it had it had already gained dominance in russia but like one of the big other competing ideologies marxism is very much a system of ideas and arguments and we can we can say like we think those arguments don't work those ideas are you know mistaken and so on but it's a it's a philosophical system but what you're describing and a lot of these these movements and ideas on the far right present themselves as philosophy, but they don't quite seem to be that. They seem to be more just impulses and attitudes and tastes. I want this, I want this rapid decision. I don't like these people. I like the kind of pageantry of this guy taking on the mantle of the heron folk and so on. It it seems more like it's just base urges then given an intellectual gloss versus a a philosophical system argued and built for and and I think we see some, a lot of that today as well that I just I I don't like those weirdos on the coasts doing their strange cosmopolitan stuff I just want kind of things to be the way that they always were and so on is that a fair characterization of a lot of this, or am I discounting some argumentative heft? I disagree fundamentally with your diagnosis, with all due respect. I do think that many of these thinkers had a coherent set of ideas that if you grant some of their premises, they, they do fit together. Uh, one distinction from Marxism is uh, Mark, Karl Marx was one guy who was uh, suffered from uh, a great deal of logoria. He wrote enormous amounts of material. As Mises put it very neatly, uh, Karl Marx had the ability to take a single idea, a simple idea, and express it in a mere 400 pages. But so there's a huge body of material covering many different disciplines written by Karl Marx. So we call that Marxism. And then many people came along and they interpreted these sacred texts. And, you know, it's kind of a low-budget Talmudic exercise to go through the works of Marx. And there isn't anyone like that for this uh, right-wing intellectual movement, this right-wing collectivism. There are many different thinkers. 
but there are certain coherent principles. We, I think, are misled by the historical interpretation of fascism as a movement of thugs. And indeed, there are a lot of thugs in fascist movements. They're the ones who would beat people up at, in the, the stormtroopers and the black shirts in Italy and so on. Uh, and they like to motivate people that we could describe as thugs, often not very educated and violent uh, people. And as a consequence, people thought, well, that's what fascism is. This is a terrible mistake. The leaders of these movements are often highly educated persons. They're multilingual. They're, they're very well-read. Uh, and they're intellectuals. They wrote books. They wrote articles. They uh, dominated much of the intellectual life of the countries in which their movements came to power. So I think it's a mistake to see this as just a kind of dressing up of some sort of ugly impulses, like I don't like those people across the street. Instead, I think this is a movement that is uh, deeply nihilistic in certain ways. They want to smash all existing institutions. They are revolutionary. Uh, the interesting point in Germany, there was this movement known as the Conservative Revolution. I think the first one to use that term was Hugo von Hofmannsthal, an Austrian uh, poet and intellectual, but it was later articulated by uh, many others. Uh, their view was not conservative as we normally think of the term, namely that, that we want incremental change or a great deal of caution uh, in making changes and you know conserving things that work. To the extent there is that kind of conservatism, I think there's much wisdom in it. I'm not, I would call myself a conservative, but I see the wisdom in that approach, and we find that in Edmund Burke and, and many other thinkers along those lines. Uh, this isn't like that at all. They wanted to smash everything. They had nothing around them that they wanted to conserve. What they wanted instead was certain values, which they often associated with uh, uh, martial values. They were anti-bourgeois. They didn't like the bourgeois values at all, toleration, uh, measure in life, of commerce, of incremental improvement, of conversation and discussion. They believed in things like valor, courage, perseverance, self-sacrifice, self-denial, suffering, and so on. And they wanted to smash the existing world order and all the institutions around them and build new ones that would embody what they considered to be the values they had chosen. And those institutions they would then want to preserve or conserve. So it is a, it's really a profoundly revolutionary view, and we do find this uh, among contemporary um, Tencent intellectuals like Steve Bannon, who describes himself as a Leninist, who's going to smash all the institutions. Uh, this is not what most people think of as a conservative mentality. It's a highly revolutionary mentality. And the people who articulate this are intellectuals. The difference with Marxism is there wasn't just one person, so we don't call it Schmittism or Heideggerianism or whatever. Uh, those people were parts of a, a generalized movement. They had a great deal in common, but there wasn't one figure that created a cult like Marxism uh, became. So granting that, that there isn't a single figure, and that might complicate the question that I'm about to ask, a lot of when we think of revolutionary ideologies, 
one way to think about them is that these people have a clear picture of the world as they think it ought to be, which is different from the world as it is right now. And they want to affect radical change to get it from where it is to that, that clear vision of a better world. So for these far-right ideologies, you've mentioned values and you've said they want to instantiate institutions that will embody and enforce and reinforce those values. But can you give us a sense is more concretely of if these guys could snap their fingers and create the world of their dreams, what like just on the ground, structurally, culturally, socially, and so on, does that world look like? Uh, it's a bit scary, and I'll tell you one reason uh, that I find that uh, idea terrifying is that all of these movements would, in the course of time, turn on each other. Ultranationalisms are ultimately incompatible with each other, because if you're a Hungarian nationalist and I'm a Slovak nationalist, uh, you refer to me as a monkey and I refer to you as uh, uh, some other sort of insult. Those two forms of nationalism are opposed to each other. Hungarian nationalists and Slovak nationalists don't like each other. There's a large Hungarian minority in Slovakia, and the real hardcore Slovak nationalists hate them, just as Hungarian nationalists don't like Romanians and Romanian nationalists don't like Hungarians. So all of them are nationalists, and they're opposed to liberal cosmopolitanism. They're opposed to uh, live and let live mentality. And once they dispense with all of us who would like to live together in peace, they will turn on each other. And so that's one of the scary things about these uh, trends is that they advocate unlimited state power. They advocate, advocate state power that is based ultimately on the exertion of will, not on any kind of attempt to gather objective truths about the world, about what works better, what's more efficacious, and so on. And those wills may come into conflict. And the consequence is that this illiberal international is international only in the sense that it's opposed to liberalism. French nationalists and German nationalists, oh, for the last uh, 200 years, have had a lot of disagreements among themselves, although they all disagree more fundamentally with the ideas of liberalism and freedom of trade, freedom of movement, and all the other fundamental liberal values. Uh, they hate each other. And so a world that would be realized by the members of these movements would be a world of violence. And I'll point out one other element in this. They're fine with that. Because violence is, in their view, an instantiation of a set of virtues that have been occluded or suppressed by liberalism. So Deirdre McCloskey, in her books on the bourgeois society, she talks about bourgeois dignity, bourgeois values, and so on, uh, and other kinds of virtues, the virtue of the Homeric warrior, for example. Well, you don't get to realize that very much in a, in a free, open society. We go around slaughtering people and massacring them and stealing their stuff. And so it's not surprising that some of the more... Um, outre or weird 
uh, theorists of this movement uh, use names like Bronze Age pervert, uh, the notion of the Bronze Age. That was when men were really men, uh, before we had iron, uh, when people were killing each other with bronze swords and marching in phalanxes and so on. So that was uh, their vision is a world in which conflict is valorized. They love it. And indeed, to go back to Carl Schmitt, uh, the foundation of politics is the confrontation of enemies, and that means one fighting collectivity is willing to destroy another. That This has been also stated in aesthetic form many, many times. I'm trying to find in front of me the book of... Um, one of the most important intellectual leaders of this conservative revolution in Germany, a man named Ernst Jünger. And Ernst Jünger was a very brilliant uh, artist. He wrote novels and uh, was quite an interesting uh, person. And in his discussion of World War I and his role as a stormtrooper in it, in a book called um, The Storm of Steel and Stahlgewittern, he said, if it be objected that we belong to a time of crude force, our answer is, we stood with our feet in mud and blood, yet our faces were turned to things of exalted worth, and not one of that countless number who fell, and our attacks fell for nothing. Each one fulfilled his destiny. He says, it is not every generation that is so favored. In other words, uh, that this was glorious to be in the trenches and to stab your bayonet into the guts of another man and disembowel him, that that was to be in the most favored generation. I find this repulsive in the extreme, and I'll mention one other thing on the literary front, kind of two competing books that came out of World War I, World War I had many, many important literary works that came out of it, but two in German were um, Ernst Jünger's book and The Storm of Steel, and then uh, Eric Maria Remarque's book Im Westen nichts Neues, All Quiet on the Western Front. And these two books presented two different views of the war, and the one that the right-wing collectivists like is the one of Jünger that the war was a great experience, at least for those who survived. I think that's an important point to highlight is how much of these movements are ultimately aesthetic and, and a, a vision of something that is glorious and beautiful in this perverse way that we can participate in. And it makes me wonder <clears throat> how much of this is a a search for or a longing for meaning and a critique that liberalism doesn't give us meaning in the way that we are either naturally predisposed to seek it or or the way that is the the most elevated that participation in war being one of those soldiers in the mud among many soldiers in the mud fighting and dying for a cause is is a way to give very concretely a sense of meaning to your life whereas 
what liberalism does is essentially liberalism doesn't say there is no meaning. It just says basically we, the state, the folk, the people aren't going to give it to you. You have to go out and and find it on your own, find it voluntarily. There's going to be a lot of different ways to approach it. And that that is more challenging in in a lot of ways. I'm I'm thinking of there's the, the poet John Berryman. There's a poem that my parents used to quote occasionally when I was growing up. And one of the lines in it, he says, ever to confess your board means you have no inner resources. And and it seems like a lot of this is is essentially like boredom in a liberal society that it's not giving me these these dramatic things to be a part of and what I want then is is this great man making decisions that I can cheer on and then leading me in combat against the enemy so that I'm no longer I'm no longer bored in my kind of comfortable liberal existence where I don't really know what to do every day Yes, I think this aesthetic dimension is extremely important and this sense of meaning. They see the life of, uh, of a free and open society as ultimately pointless. Someone who's involved in commerce makes um, you know, the buttons you put on shirts. How boring and pointless and that is that when you could be in the trenches fighting, uh, experiencing the, the bloodlust, surge of adrenaline, whoever gets a big adrenaline surge from inventing a new button uh, to hold up your trousers. So they, they hate uh, productive society, in effect, uh, that all the things that make life worthwhile are considered by them to be less significant. They don't like what they consider to be the alienation of modern society, so they share this in common with uh, Marxists. There's a lot in common with Marxism, by the way. Uh, Marxist texts had a big influence on this uh, set of thinkers. Their hatred of market relations and trade and so on is a common feature. Um, and they, they find it difficult to imagine having a life of meaning through family, through your work, your profession, through art, through poetry, through the other things that people do. And they ultimately see a warrior elite as the only carriers of the true meaning, and all the rest of us are going to be there to serve them, leading meaningless lives, producing stuff for ultimately the highest life, which is this life of, of the warrior. And that's the more extreme form of this uh, right-wing collectivism. And you find elements of this. There was an interesting book a couple of years ago by Sebastian Junger called Tribes, and it reflected some of this uh, view in a contemporary setting. So I think that's uh, uh, an important element of it. Anytime someone talks about an aesthetics of politics, I need immediately get a little bit of an uh, unpleasant shiver down my spine. Something bad is going to come from that. I think that what we need is a politics of process, uh, rules governed orders that allow people to coordinate themselves. Uh, I should uh, point out what a, a big fan I am of David Schmitz's most recent book on ethics. I think it's called Living Together. It's a wonderful book, and it's about navigating our differences so that we can live together and we can find meaning in the things that we do in life, and, and yours might be different from mine. There we go. We're two different people. 
But again, the collectivist view is, no, we have to have a collective meeting, that that's ultimately the only meeting that is worth having. Yeah, as you were making the point about buttons, I, I actually made a note about alienation of labor, thinking about the Marxist parallel too, because it seems like the problem is not making buttons for them. Because if you were, maybe you don't get, you're not lucky enough to be on the front in the trenches firing the artillery. But if you're at home making buttons for those soldiers' uniforms, that's a sense of meaning. The problem is not the that you're making buttons. The problem is that in a liberal society, you're making buttons for some merchant somewhere or or some kids, you know, pageant dress for a church group or something like that. It's not, it doesn't have that you're part of this, this bigger thing. But that seems to present a real problem for us as liberals addressing these movements. Because when we argue, so if we're arguing, say, with a progressive, or we're arguing with a Marxist, we can say to them, you know, that a lot of that argument can be you want to achieve prosperity and equality and so on and so forth. But the things that you want to do, the way you want to use the government to achieve this and so on doesn't, doesn't work. It's not going to achieve the ends that you have in mind. The socialist calculation problem means that your grand designs for the economy won't achieve the fruits that you hope for, etc. But if we're talking with people who their fundamental problem with liberalism is that it doesn't give us this grand collective sense of meaning forged and refined and kind of given aesthetic weight by violence and conflict, our response to that has to be, you're right. Liberalism doesn't give that kind of thing. That's in fact one of the great things about liberalism is that it it short circuits the process by which those sources of meaning become a dominant and ongoing part of everyone's lives. And and so it's less about arguing your values are bad and corrupt and our values are better, but that seems like a much more challenging, you know, someone who just has those bad and corrupt values, if we're trying to defend liberalism to them, that feels like a pretty big uphill battle. Well, I think it's a, a fundamentally different conception of freedom. And I should point out that left-wing collectivism also has this, certainly in its more virulent forms, and I, I don't mean American progressives, but Leon Trotsky uh, certainly hated uh, free society and, and every possible manifestation. He wanted society to be organized like the army. And there would be industrial armies, and actually there would be scientific breeding of humans. He wouldn't have this old-fashioned, uh, you meet someone and like that person and you fall in love and you get married and you have kids. That's unscientific. It would all be planned and we'd have a breeding program. He was obsessed with breeding chickens, for example, and he wanted to breed humans uh, roughly the same way and organize everything like the army. And so it's it's not the case that Marxists were just saying, well, we have a better way to, to produce a more commodious life. And liberals say, well, we disagree about your means. That's true of some people, of course. Real hardcore Marxist collectivists reject 
liberalism in its entirety, including this idea of individual freedom. Marx is very clear in uh, on the Jewish question, one of the most bitterly vicious anti-Semitic books ever written. He truly hated Jews. Uh, <clears throat> he argued that man was a species being, that freedom was only realized in this collective form. And collective freedom is the, also a theme on the far right. Uh, not, namely, that what matters is us deciding who we are, not you deciding who you are or who you, how you want to live. And they turn liberal language against liberals. They say, well, we're for freedom. Who are you to say that we in Iran can't stone people to death uh, because a woman showed her hair? You're violating our freedom. And of course, this language is picked up by all of the totalitarian regimes around the world. They say, well, you're, you're picking on us. If you criticize us for uh, beating a woman to death for showing her hair, what about our freedom? Well, that is exactly the theme that was picked up by these uh, uh, conservative revolutionary thinkers in Germany and also their allies in France and elsewhere. And now we see it even with someone like your own Hazoni, who's a uh, uh, nationalist, a conser conservative nationalist or national conservative, who talks about, well, the important freedom is this collective freedom, and it's about freedom to decide who we are. Martin Heidegger put it very uh, neatly in a uh, series of lectures in, I think, 1934, and he said them. Um, uh, liberalism was the I time, and now, now that the National Socialists had taken power, now is the we time, because we know who we are. And we, Tider argued, we are Germans, and German means not a Jew. And the Jew is sort of be purged out of, we know ultimately what happened, uh, purged out of a German society as an alien, un-German presence. So this notion of collective freedom is very important to them, and they turn it on its head, and Hazoni does this uh, most powerfully. They talk about liberal imperialism. If you say that Iran, the Iranian state, is acting unjustly, and, and you have the temerity to criticize them, for beating women to death because they let their hair be shown in public, then you are an imperialist. That's imperialism. You want to tell them how to live. And then he suggests, based on a grotesque distortion of uh, texts by classical liberals, that uh, what liberals want is a super state that will run around the world invading people and forcing them to uh, not uh, beat women to death well, of course, that doesn't follow. You can argue that uh, you shouldn't beat a woman to death for showing her hair, as, as you and I certainly believe you should not do that. But it would not follow from that that there should be a global state that should invade any part of the world where that happens and plunge the world into war. There are certainly other ways to undo that horror. But for uh, this right-wing collectivist view, well, that's just their freedom. It's their freedom to do that. And it's imperialistic if you dare to be critical of them. Ultimately, their position collapses into incoherence, in my opinion. But there we have it.
how do they either the the historical versions of these arguments or the contemporary ones, the the national conservatives and Hazoni and so on, define or delineate the we? Because maybe the we, they said the we in Iran believes that this is the way we're exercising our freedom by behaving in these ways. But that we clearly doesn't include the women who are being stoned to death because it's not the it's not the world and the set of rules and values that they want. Or if you're a Hungarian nationalist, there are a lot of people who are born and raised in Hungary and consider themselves to be Hungarian who don't share those values or cultural and social preferences. And so is there a, I guess, non-cynical way that they define that we, a way that isn't just we is the people is whoever shares my particular preferences. And if you don't share my particular preferences, then you're not part of the the we that matters. Is there a more intellectually plausible way that they carve that out? Well, uh, Hazoni uh, and his approach uh, argues that it's the nation state and uh, that the nation state has some dominant nation. Uh, so there might be minorities in it, but one group is dominant. And uh, the others, uh, well, they just have to put up with that, namely put up with being dominated. There are uh, other views that see uh, societies as uh, organic. Uh, typically, these don't use the term society, which is a term more associated with uh, liberalism. And uh, what's interesting, Hazoni uh, stretches himself into pretzels, arguing, well, Hitler and National Socialism weren't nationalistic, which is a very puzzling view. His argument was, well, they invaded other countries. And if you're a nationalist, you wouldn't do that. Well, that's a very puzzling view. They did it because they believed their nation was the ruling nation, was the dominant nation, was the one that was superior and should be able to uh, invade and conquer and subjugate others. This is what's happening in Russia. Right now, this notion that the Russian people are somehow special, unique, and superior, and all the other peoples of Eurasia uh, should um, uh, be subordinated to them, and if they don't agree to it, should be exterminated, which is what they're attempting to to do in Ukraine. So uh, this view you can start with, well, there you have the existing nation states, and within them, they're the dominant nation. It's a little hard to understand how that fits in with countries like Switzerland. Uh, they have a Swiss identity, even though people speak German or French or Italian uh, or Romance, small minority. <clears throat> but Hazoni's view, you can take the basic currently existing nation states, and they have some dominant nation. And the United States, that's a kind of interesting question. What does it mean? What would be the dominant nation in the United States? And it's quite clear it's some sort of Protestant, uh, Anglo, whatever combination. The U.S. is looking less like that uh, every day. Uh, the society is changing. Uh, definitions of groups are uh, changing along the way. So I don't think that his, his view would even provide any kind of clear or unambiguous guidance uh, in these cases. 
the more organic view, which you found with National Socialism and others, was that there was an organically existing folk and that it had an existence, uh, a being that was prior to that of the individuals that might be associated with it. And that's also a feature we find in some of the contemporary extreme forms of postmodern discourse. You don't really exist. You, an individual, you're just a, a phantasm. You're merely the intersection of forces, uh, forces of domination, class, race, gender, and so on, and that the individual human being is epiphenomenal. This doesn't really exist at all. It's just actually forces that exist, which I think is a case of really uh, misplaced uh, concreteness and, and understanding social reality. But who gets to be the one that decides who we are? Well, ultimately, what it means is some of us will decide for the others. It's not us deciding who we are. It's some of us deciding who the other people are. And my last point in this regard is there's a, a, a trend that is common to all of this, which is a, the populist mentality that we can divide the population into the true people and the enemies of the people. So Ernesto Laclau, in his book on populist reason, it's a really unreadable, boring, turgid, badly written uh, mass of words. But once you struggle through it, uh, his point is that the leader, he calls the empty signifier, that's Mussolini and Juan Perón and Hitler and uh, Putin and so on, the leader will create the people. And the way that you create the people is by designating the enemies of the people. So that you, you build an identity. The nation or the people ultimately is a construct of power. It was pretty common in the second Bush administration for people on the left to refer to Bush and Bush-style Republicans and then Paul Ryan-style Republicans and before that Reagan-style conservatives as fascists and to, to throw that, that term around as just a general kind of condemnation of political ideas that we didn't like. But obviously, as we've discussed for the last nearly 40 minutes, these movements that we're seeing in ascendance right now are are fundamentally different from that kind of conservatism, no matter what you know objections we as liberals might have had to to that sort of conservatism. But at the same time, it seems like so many still want to talk about these contemporary movements as within that same ballpark, right? That that this is Trumpism doesn't represent something radically new at the heights of the American political scene. And I say that because these these beliefs have always been present in the American political scene. They they weren't just kind of birthed suddenly, as we've been discussing. Um, but rather as just, you know, this is just kind of like a more extreme version of what came before, maybe a little bit more radical version. And and so I guess my question is, why does there seem to be this inability to recognize not just how fundamentally different 
these views are, but how fundamentally and profoundly dangerous they are. And what can we what can we do about that? Because fighting back against this stuff begins with taking it really seriously. But there seems to be kind of an aversion to taking it seriously or a real desire to like explain it away as just some people getting carried away. I think it it's one of the more puzzling features of of political discourse. Uh if you think that uh whatever Mitt Romney is a fascist or something, wait till you meet an actual fascist. Uh I, I think that kind of language is uh, despicable, and it's not because I'm a big Romney fan or anything like that. It's just absurd. Uh, going back to 1946, uh, George Orwell, in his uh, wonderful essay, Politics in the English Language, said, uh, the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. So the term fascist just became this term that, if you didn't like something, you called it fascist. Uh, grossly unfair in most cases. And the problem is that when you meet real fascists, you don't have no vocabulary to describe them. So real hyper-nationalists like uh, uh, Le Pen uh, or some of the people in the, the European uh, fascist movements or the uh, Trumpists basically are waging war on liberal democracy uh, what do you call them? Well, first off, I'd like to retire the term fascism as a term of contemporary discourse. It's just become so degraded. I think right-wing collectivism is more helpful. Now, if you look at, at so-called American conservatives, they have differed from European conservatives in lots of important ways. Typically, can't speak in a way that would describe everyone who had this term, they thought they were conserving something. And typically it meant the Constitution and what they saw as the American way of life. What did they see as the American way of life? Well, it meant that you respect your neighbors and you have freedom of religion and you follow the Constitution and you have the First Amendment and people can disagree without killing each other. Well, those are basically liberal values. So they, they were conservative insofar as they wanted to protect more or less a set of liberal institutions. Some of them uh, dragged their heels when it came to getting rid of illiberal, monstrous, unconstitutional institutions, but by the way, not all of them. There are many people who were later called conservatives who had been in the civil rights movement uh, because they saw those things as un-American. And in a certain sense, that's a kind of conservatism uh, that is essentially a branch of liberalism as the real illiberals understand, people like Patrick Deneen and so on, they understand this very, very clearly. Now we have, though, a movement, or I should say a set of movements, a whole constellation of ideas that really are opposed to liberalism. They're sometimes called conservatism, but it's not clear what they want to conserve. As I mentioned, they want to smash everything. They're alienated from our contemporary social life. They hate it. Uh, they see the world as in a period of decline. There's another common theme, this declinism. Usually they have cyclical theories of uh, history, of one weird sort of other. Steve Bannon is obsessed by this uh, rubbish and nonsense. He's influenced by the Italian ultra-hyper-fascist Julius Evola. 
who said we're in the Kali Yoga, the, the period of decline of civilization. And so they want to smash it all to pieces and then instantiate these, these values that they see as transcendent, as beautiful, and they are the values typically of the warrior. And then on faith, they're going to create some kind of new state that will instantiate these. Well, that didn't turn out too well when it was tried before. And I won't turn out better in the future. And if they get their way, the future of humanity will be one of unending violence and warfare, degradation and poverty. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com, or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.